Why Jesus? And does that matter to me? As I read Matthew, and, and thanks to Hannah for reading and reading so well, such a powerful scripture, there was something that caught my attention. And it was deep, it was profound, and I thought I need to share it. So before we go to, to the scripture in Matthew, I'd like to get away or get out of the way something that is in between, that I need to share that. So rather than starting with Matthew and then going to some history, I thought I'll get rid of the history which is in between, and then we can go from Matthew and see what that means to us. So the church, and this is somewhere around 250, 300 after Christ's death on the cross, and there were... Some uh, Christian centers, very important centers, and I'd like you to see the map. The first one there would be in, uh, in Antioch, and there is an arrow there that points to Antioch. And um, Antioch was a, one of the first Christian centers. That's a lot of thinkers. Ignatius of Antioch, uh, there was, um, uh, sorry, Clement of Antioch, and, and many others, very good, good thinkers that came from there. And then the second center was uh, in Alexandria, which was south, which was in Egypt. And they became, in there, in fact, there was the first Bible college that was uh, set up. And great thinkers came out of there. Origin and, and, and Tertullian was uh, 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 sort of uh, uh, identified with that, uh, with that way of thinking. And Christianity started to take shape. And there were these debates about Christianity. There was about who is Jesus and, and, and about salvation. So in, before that, all the, all the teaching happened in synagogues and in the temple. And there was all about, uh, uh, from the Jewish perspective, but all of a sudden now we have uh, these centers, uh, which is, um, which is uh, uh, Antioch and Alexandria. And not long after that, it was Rome. Rome became also an important Christian center where the, uh, the Bishop of Rome was there, which later became a Pope. And so when Constantine gets converted, he realizes that Rome and Antioch and, and Alexandria all of a sudden have different beliefs, not different to, like, we are here, we're a church, and across the road on the other side of the railway there's another church, and there's one down uh, just probably a couple hundred meters uh, uh, to your left, and there is another church there, and, and there is some different ideologies in, in churches. And Constantine was very, very concerned with that because his empire was falling apart. And he thought that maybe if he keeps the, the empire together, he needs to set up a new center. And there was Constantinople, later known as Byzantine. And that's where the Hagia Sophia was built, a magnificent building. I know I've been there. I hope to go there one day. And so Constantine built that as a center, which became the fourth Christian center. But the division all of a sudden became very big because Arius, someone that was from Libya that was trained in Alexandria, and Alexandria was a great place to train people because uh, Alexander the Great, which founded Alexandria and ended after himself, he put a huge library, perhaps the biggest library in the empire. So it was very easy for clever people, great thinkers to go and study and learn about history, religion, philosophy, medicine, all these things, all in Alexandria. And of course, in Alexandria was where the first Bible college happened to be, 
Why? Because it was just so convenient and there were so many books available. And the Jewish uh, people, uh, when during that time, so this is way, way before Christ, when all this is happening and, and, and there is Hellenism taking the world, they thought we need to translate our scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures, into Greek. And that's how we get the Septuagint Bible, which later was translated into Latin. I'll talk about that maybe another time. However, so Constantine is trying to unite the kingdom, trying to keep things together, because the king or any leader, even pastors today, ministers, it is far more important unity than truth. I know that you think well, that's, that's wrong, but unity becomes such an important part. So Constantine was obsessed with unity. He wanted to unite the whole empire, and truth was somehow secondary. Around 3.30, there is a, a bishop that is from Libya, studied in, uh, in Alexandria by the name of Arius. And Arius said that Jesus couldn't be God. They couldn't be equal to God. His idea was that Jesus was created. Yes, he was the firstborn. And this caused such a havoc in church. And, um, and so that's when the Council of Nicaea came. You probably see it in Constantine uh, in the map before. You probably would have seen it. And in the Council of Nicaea at 325, they had to deal with Arian's heresy. That Arian is a heretic. That is not the way that Jesus is. And, uh, and that's where we get uh, the council, or the, we believe. We believe in God the Father, maker of the universe. Yeah? It came from there. It was right there that that was born. The idea of a triune God, the idea of Trinity, for the first time, all the bishops agreed, and they expelled Arius of the church. And so it's all good. Until about 420, and I think we got it there, 425, 431, 428, actually, is when a new bishop in Constantine by the name of Nestorius assumes. And, um, and in 431, he said, because people are asking, how could this Jesus die on the cross and save people? Many people died on the cross before. What's the difference? How could Jesus save? Why is it? Is Jesus God? Is Jesus a human? And so Nestorius thought that he had an answer. And he said, well, Jesus has got two natures. It's like putting water in a glass and adding oil to it. So it's the two natures in one, but they don't mix. They are in one recipient. That's why when Jesus dies on a cross, it's his human nature that dies because God could never die. If, died, if, 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 if God died on the cross, then he wouldn't be God. A bishop from Alexandria by the name of Cyril, he said, that's a heresy. And all of a sudden, the whole empire is in havoc. And so they call another council in the Council of Ephesus on June 22. And, um, 
And Celsus from Alexandria said, no, it is not like that. I have a different explanation. And he said that Jesus, his nature is like putting water in a glass and also putting wine in a glass. And the two natures are mixed, inseparable and one. That Christ cannot be separate, we cannot separate the divinity and the humanity of Christ. And so they expelled Nestorius. Nestorius was a great thinker. But you know what happened? It was the final wedge between East and West. And that's when the church separated Catholics and Orthodox. And never reconciled again. By the way, um, based on that, it was so powerful what happened there in, in Ephesus. That um, later... The, the bishop of, uh, of Constantinople expels the Catholic bishop. And the bishop of Rome goes back to Rome and expels the bishop of Constantinople. The bitterness continued. And when Islam was marching on, and they have taken Antioch, and they have taken Alexandria, and they were surrounding the Hagia Sophia, they were about to take Byzantine, Constantinople. The bishop of Constantinople called, not on a phone, but called, sent letters to the bishop of Rome to come and help. And he agreed. But he came and agreed to watch how Byzantine is going to fall. Hello. That's why we have the wars, the religious wars that we have, even till today in the Balkans. So, you're probably thinking, so which one is it? Or what is on offer today? What kind of Christ do we believe in? You know what? If we could explain Christ in two cups, or in one cup, this Christ would be too small. This Christ would be very little. The Christ that I believe in is much greater than any of those two explanations. And I'll try to deal with that in Matthew. So in Matthew, we find that Jesus is coming down from a mountain. And in the narrative, Matthew uses a, a very, very powerful narrative. And the Gospel of Matthew is very different to Mark and, and very different to Luke and very different to John. Because Matthew has an agenda. Matthew wants to bring across, he's not denying all the things that Mark and, and Luke are saying. This is not a controversy. This is not a contradiction. It's just that, Matthew, uh, that Mark and Luke see Jesus in, a, in, a, in, in one way. But Matthew is saying, hey, boys, you have forgot something. I need to point out something to my people, the Jewish people, and also to the world about this Jesus. This Jesus is different to anyone else. And so when he says that Jesus came down from the mountain, he's alluding that Jesus came from a high place. He comes down, and what is the first thing that he finds? A leper. A leper, a person that is segregated, a person associated with sin, someone that is uh, uh, rejected by society, someone that is ostracized by society, someone who carries a very bad disease, someone who is actually literally falling apart. People that have leprosy actually fall apart. Their fingers fall apart, their nose and ears. They, they are falling apart while being alive. And Jesus comes down, and there was such a contagious thing then, and even now, leprosy. 
And Jesus comes and, and you find this person there that uh, uh, the leper knelt in for, before him. And he said, if you choose, can you heal me? Or please heal me. Or, or please make me clean. And, uh, and Jesus, he stretched his hand and touched him, saying, I choose, be made clean. And immediately his leprosy went away. Now, this, 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 this is unthinkable. I mean, how many of you would go and touch a leper? Well, we don't see, they are, even in Australia, they're segregated. But uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, you know, Sister Yoti would have seen in, in, in some parts of, of, uh, of India people that are lepers, and, and you don't touch them, do you? you it, it's, it's, you know, it, it's a sight, you know. People look in a different direction. But this Jesus, he goes and touches. We don't know how. But he says that he touched him. He touched him and this leprosy went away. And when that happens, that takes place, he says, don't tell anyone. You go and show yourself to the priests. You go and show them. This, this happens in, in the north of Israel. And he's saying, go to the south. Go to where the temple is. You go and show your priests. Go and tell them. Tell them what? That there is some good news. That there is someone that came that was prophesied upon. That someone prophesied saying that this Jesus is coming. Go and tell them the good news. See if they recognize. See if they realize that the one that is doing these things of his identity and who he is. Or will they still be debating about who Jesus is? Go and present yourself. They can verify that you're clean. And so the story continues. And uh, it says that once they came out of there, he entered Capernaum. So this is, he was by the Sea of Galilee. He just had the Sermon on the Mount. He comes down, sees the leper, and, and continues walking and as he's coming into a city, Capernaum, a centurion came to him, appealing to him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed in terrible distress. And he said to him, I will come and cure him. The centurion answered, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only speak the word and my servant will be healed. This, this is bizarre because first Jesus goes and touches a leper. We don't know. We assume that he was from Jewish background. Matthew doesn't say anything. Then he goes and, and, and a centurion, the enemy of Israel, comes and he's begging. And, and he says, not only is he, but his servant, his slave is sick. You know, someone that is totally insignificant in society. And Jesus is saying, you know what? That person is significant. I better go, I better go to your place and heal this person. You know, we're not talking of someone of, that is in, in, in high places. We're not talking of a priest. We're not talking of, of, of someone from the Sanhedrin that needs healing. This is someone of no value. And Jesus says he is of value. He changes the thing around. And then um, 
when there is this debate about the, the, the authority of Jesus, the, centurion, uh, the centurion says, uh, for I also am a man of authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and, the, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, he says, do this, and the slave does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those that followed him, truly I tell you, in no one in Israel I have found such faith. So Jesus is highlighting the faith of, of this person. This is no longer about someone who is begging, kneeling down, and asking if you wish, if you want to, if you choose. But this is someone that has got a lot of faith and says, you know what, you just say the word. That's enough. I said this before, that we, throughout centuries, have had the debate of a very close God and very distant God. You know, it starts from Genesis 1. Genesis 1, God says the word and things happen. He doesn't have to do things with his hands. But Genesis 2, the writer says, you know what? God is actually forming human beings with his hands. A distant God and a close God. We see here a, a close God in Jesus touching and a distant God that just says the word, a very powerful God. We see it uh, also in Mary saying, Lord, if you were here, Lazarus would not have died. And so sometimes we can be judgmental of someone that says that, that takes God such a personal way that God is almost their mate and their body. And we say, oh, that's a... That's a heresy. And then we see someone else that, you know, believes that God is a very distant God. They feel somehow far away from God. And they say, no, no, you need to come close to God. Well, who are we to determine who is close and who is far away from God? This God can stretch his arm even from the distance, or he can reach for someone that is very close. Jesus amazed he said that, uh, I tell you, many will come from east and west and will eat with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the heirs of the kingdom will be thrown into the dark, outer darkness, will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion, he said, go, let it be done according to your faith. And the servant was healed in that hour. Jesus recognizes that sometimes those that know this story <coughs> fail to embrace it. And sometimes we ourselves can find in that position that we know the Bible so well, we know the scriptures, but yet we fail to embrace it. Just like the children of Israel and those that are coming from east and west. Incidentally, Matthew, see, Matthew reorders this. If you read this in Mark, the story is rearranged, completely different. Yeah, yeah, all three are there. Yeah, Luke, they're all there. But Matthew decided to put it in a very different arrangement. And he says, when Jesus, after this, obviously, Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever. He touched her hand. And the fever left her, and she got up and began to serve him. Again, we see this Jesus at first that touches the leper, gives the word, and touches the woman with a fever. A contrast. 
What is Matthew telling us? That evening, they brought to him many who were possessed with demons, and he cast the spirits with a word. Uh, didn't touch him with a word, and cured all who were sick. There is a play of words here. Mark says that the whole town came to Jesus. Everybody came to Jesus. But only few were healed. Matthew says, no, 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 no. Many came. Many came. But everyone that came was healed. Matthew is trying to stress a point. He is not, he is not saying, Mark, you got it wrong. Matthew is driving an agenda. He wants us to realize something in the story. And then at the end, he puts, this was to fulfill what the prophet, or what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah, he took our infirmities and our diseases. I, for the first time, this made a controversial sense in my mind. So I had to go and check the story. Remember the story with the blood flow? That she touch the garment of Jesus and says what? What happened? Power went out of him and healed the woman. That happens in Mark and happens in Luke, not in Matthew. In Matthew, she just touched him and she is healed. Power does not go out of him. Why? Because he is taking our diseases and our infirmities. That's why Jesus is touching people. That's why Jesus is touching people today. And he's saying, give me. Give me your illness. Give me your infirmities. Give me your problems. Give them to me. Because I'm taking them to the cross. This is not about me driving your things out. But this is about me taking it upon myself. I am taking this on myself. Given to me. Yeah? Different story. Different feeling when you hear something like that. This is about hope. This is knowing that Jesus took also my problems and my diseases to the cross. This is not, are you going to take him? He did. That's what Matthew is saying. He says, that's why. That's why this was done to fulfill what Prophet Isaiah was saying, that Jesus was taking the sin and the diseases and the sickness of the world upon himself and taking him to the cross. When we go through that, there is another thing that comes to our mind. And we think, hold on, but uh, I remember a scripture in Matthew. Incidentally, Matthew is the only one that will, what we're going to read now. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to him with her sons and kneeling before him, she's very concerned, she asked a favor of him. And he said to her, what do you want? She said to him, declare that these two sons of mine will sit one at your right hand and the other one on your left in your kingdom. Very similar to the first story. The leper kneeling. He is the, the mother of the sons of Zebedee. The sons of Zebedee were John and James. Yeah. And she's kneeling down. We would... Uh, um, 
We see that she came there with her sons. John and James are there with the mother. The mother is kneeling. Perhaps John and James are standing up. And she's saying, I want these two sons, one to sit on your right and one on your left in your kingdom. And Jesus says, uh, you do not know what you're asking. You have no idea. Women, you do not think. You do not know what you're asking. And then he says, are you able? He's referring to all three of them. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? And they said to him, we are able. He said to them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at right or at my left, it is not mine to grant, but it's for those whom he has been prepared by my father. So I have heard this saying that what Jesus is saying, yes, you will have the death that I have. Is that what he's saying? Let's have a look at the next one. What does it say? Are you able to drink the cup that I'm drinking? Are you able to drink that cup? Yes, we are. Just say, no, no, you're able to drink this cup, my cup. Not the one on the cross. You cannot drink that one. You're not the savior of the world. Yeah, you can die. You can be a martyr. But you will not save anyone. You have not taken the infirmities of the world upon your shoulders. I have a picture there of the cross. Do you know who's at the foot of the cross? Do you remember that story? Who? Yeah, Mary, the mother is there. Who else? The mother of the boys of Zebedee. <laughs> the one that knelt down and said, please, Lord, I want to, want to be on my right and one on my left. She is right there. Can we have it there? Let's read it. Many women were there also, looking from a distance. They had followed Jesus from Galilee and had provided for him. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee, the one that knelt down and said, I want one of my sons to be on your right and one on your left. What does she see there? One person on the right and one on the left. Was that what she was asking? Mothers, you, those of you that have children, imagine seeing your child right there. What a sight. And Jesus highlights, woman, you don't know what you're asking Not only mothers, fathers too. Let's go to the next one, please. When we look at these photos, and the next, the nail in the hand, the nail on the feet, and Jesus on the cross. Jesus is saying, I have taken all your illness and that's you there. That's what you look like. I'm just showing you a mirror. He has taken all our infirmities and took him to the cross so we can be healed. And what can be healed from? Jesus says, when we look at all these actions, Jesus healed people from psychological, mental, and emotional issues. 
He also has healed people that uh, were spiritually sick and physically. Those that have problems with relationships, social and family life. And he also healed people existentially with food, drink, or perhaps we can put their finance these days. That's the only way that you can create. Jesus came to heal you. He came to heal me. Are you going to still be debating about how that works? Because he's much higher than that. He's Messiah. He's the saviour of the world. He is your saviour. By the way, Matthew starts chapter 1 of Matthew with all those names that we can hardly pronounce at times. He mentions three times Jesus, Messiah. He is the saviour of the world. No one else could take the cup that he did. And he came to forgive, to heal. You remember the song, Because He Lives? Yeah. He came to heal, forgive, and save. Jack has asked for baptism. I wonder how many more will be asking for baptism since the water will be warm and, and the pool will be ready and, and the table will be set and we're going to have the communion. Would there be anyone else that would like to say yes to this Jesus? Yes to this Savior? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would bless your heart that we would be able to understand your great love, your great compassion. Thank you for taking our infirmities, for taking our diseases, for taking our troubles, your problems, for giving us hope. Lord, Thank you that in the cup and the bread, in the wine and the oil and the bread, you have chosen to heal us by giving your body, by giving your spirit. We pray that many, many people in our society, in this town, in, in St. Albans, in our neighborhoods, that they would be saved. Lord, that your message will be loud and clear. Lord Jesus, you are Messiah. You are the Savior of the world. We declare it publicly. We ask you that you would have mercy on us and that you would save us. For we ask you and thank you, this Father, in the name of Jesus. Amen.